0: Hi, Fee Hills here, and welcome to episode two. In episode one, I shared a helicopter view of an approach to foster a preventative work-based wellbeing culture. And for those of you that listened to it, you'll remember that I gave a brief overview on the EPIC methodology, as well as explaining the process of IEGS, which is basically the process of what I like to call the natural journey of behaviour and cultural change. And that stands for IGNITE, embed, grow and sustain. What I didn't go through is how the journey of transformation plays out in terms of the blend of the interventions as we go through the journey. So at each leg of the journey, like ignite, embed, grow and sustain, it it takes a different blend to create the transformation that we need. So Ignite is obviously about igniting, it's in the name. Embedding really is about habitual change. The way we do those two things are very, very different in terms of human behaviour change. So over the next four episodes, that's what I will be doing starting with ignite and outlining what is the ideal blend of interventions or assessments to ignite change and what not to expect at this stage in terms of behaviour change. For those of you who didn't listen to episode one, here's a brief overview of the method and the process. Imagine a graph. On the vertical axis is the EPIC method running from the bottom to the top in four steps, EPIC. And in the horizontal axis is IEGS. That's the process running from left to right on four points along the bottom, of course. And that is the behaviour change journey. And where these axis points meet, dictates the type of intervention to allow behaviour and cultural change to accelerate and scale and sustain along that journey, even in the most complex of workplaces. And more importantly, it keeps the cultural change journey agile and sustainable. So, you know, what's there not to love? So in this episode, I'm going to focus on Ignite because we have to start somewhere. And of course, we're going to start with igniting the fire, as it were. This is the very start of the behavioural cultural journey. Regardless of what behavioural culture you want to foster, whether it's a specific team or organisational culture like, um, like well-being or a coaching culture, or one of feedback, that's very popular currently. Or if you're setting sail on embedding a specific framework of new values and behaviours for the new world of work. We need to ignite and inspire people to buy into and understand not just the vision, but be willing to take a specific pathway to bring that vision to life. The mission and the vision is all really important, but we also need this pathway. And the pathway is what we're going to build the culture upon. It's the way we get there. It's the way we bring our vision to life. At this stage, inspiration in spirit is the name of the game, as I'm sure you're already aware. And to be fair, organisations are normally really, really good at this part of the journey we know in our own lives, we can ignite behavior in so many different ways. We could read a book and it inspires us. We could hear or watch a speech and be inspired by that, regardless whether the person spoke hundreds of years ago and was an inspirational leader or did some inspirational work or in the current times, even, you know, talk about TED talks and things like that. And what it may do is help us take a whole new journey in life. It helps us what's called transform and we can also be transformed by a life-changing experience be that negative or positive so when it comes to organizations though igniting change and all the way through the process of cultural change needs to really be more systematic iterative measurable and of course we want to make it sustainable before we ignite change we do need to arm ourselves with the data So where are we now versus where we want to be? Now, I'm going to do an episode just on measuring and assessing the health and well-being of our people and the culture of our organisation you know, and the various different options in which we can do that. But for today, I'm going to dive into the behaviour games, what's called the behaviour games, which is something we've developed uh, based on the EPIC methodology. Now, these are experiential behavior-based activities that deal with behavior nuances. And then they can be stacked together and tailored to create interventions, workshops, retreats, whatever they may be, for transformational purposes in the workplace or in big groups. And if we use those behavior games across the organization in a very systematic way, then we can quickly ignite a specific new culture and start to change as well. By the way, really important here for culture change, the organisational language. So how do we ignite change using experiential learning interventions like workshops, themed events, or even play experiential activities out in bite-sized chunks and use them at the start of a weekly meeting or maybe a type of coffee break learning. You get the picture. When you've got bite-sized chunks of experiential group learning for behavior change you can effectively put them together and stack them together to create bigger events experiential or you can do them in bite-sized more iterative approach if you want to or you can do a bit of both with this approach the world really is your oyster experiential is the e in the epic the experiential bit Goes down to a further process, and that process is observe, reflect, adapt. So all of the activities are designed to observe, put put people in the experience, reflect, reflect on that experience, extract the learning or the creative knowledge, or the or the new knowledge, and then adapt. Now observe part. Let's so let's just break that down. So observe is putting people into a specific experience, as I just said. Be it playful or more serious, either way it's experiential and allowing people to raise their self-awareness, explore and experiment. So there's never a wrong answer in this type of approach. I mean, if you know about experiential learning, you know that anyway. But there's never a wrong answer. And there's never really a completely prescriptive outcome It's certainly not in behavior games. There isn't. But in any experiential learning, there shouldn't be a prescriptive outcome. This is what we call psychologically safe. Why? Because there is no wrong answer. And in order to be psychologically safe, it sort of has to be like that. Once the experiential element of the activity is complete, we can then reflect on what we've observed during the experience, if you like, what we noticed, and more importantly, what we felt. In other words, what we learned from the experience. So that is where we can start to ignite the adaptation of a specific behaviour or nuance of a behaviour or a competency or a skill. And then we can start to put them into practice in our daily lives to improve performance. We can improve relationships and the overall well-being of both the individual and us as a group. But of course, when it comes to the adapt element of the process, only we can decide, as I said, when and how we adapt to specific behavior. So that can never be forced. Well, it can't be forced because you can't change somebody else's behavior own your own. What you can do is influence the transformation or the thought. This learning can be put into practice straight away. And that really is the difference between focusing too much on information versus transformation. And this is what is called learner-centered design. So rather than trainer-centered design, we put the learner at the center of the experience and allow them to share tacit knowledge with their colleagues and create new knowledge together. When I first designed Café style experiential activities, many people said to me, oh, that's nice. We can use them as warm-up activities to liven up the real learning. So in their mind, the real learning was the information or the models. That was the real learning. It was practice current knowledge that was proven to be this is good, this is bad. So it was prescribed learning outcomes which was information-based primarily. They would say we can use these experiential activities to liven up, to get all this proper knowledge taught to our people. What many people thought, and in many cases still do, is that prescribed current knowledge in a trainer-centred environment is learning. Whereas we need to shift, especially in behaviour and cultural change, to facilitating people to think for themselves. So that really is the big shift, or so I'll repeat that, is shifting from the approach of doing the thinking for the learner to facilitating them to think for themselves so that they can share tacit knowledge or implicit knowledge and they can create new knowledge together or they're more likely to in that environment. The other point about trainer-centered design, of which there's still a huge place, of course, just not in behaviour change, is that it can overwhelm people with information, models, and concepts that they can't easily bring to life in their daily working habits. So let's focus a second on leadership. And there's a lot of models around and a lot of leaders may feel that they're overwhelmed with too many models, but in practice, how do I turn that model into daily leadership practice that works? Too much information can cause this overwhelming feeling. I know a lot, but I'm not sure what I can do with what I know a lot when it comes to behavior change. So it becomes simply too complex and also it's too linear for our exponentially changing workplace or changing world. When we move to experiential facilitation, using activity or or playful learning to support us, it becomes more immersive and the learning or the development allows more introspection. Now, this is really important because we may be in a social learning environment in there, but introspection is still really important. So we can do introspection separately, like in the mind nudging, which is on another podcast but we still need to do introspection during the sessions because we need to access the power of our unconscious mind. The transformation is accelerated if we can do that. And if we can do that systematically and in a social environment, i.e. in groups, it can scale behaviour and cultural change. Yes! So you may be asking, how are they designed? And the important thing here is when we're designing bite-sized or micro experiential learning activities that are learner-centered, we must not be tempted to put in big chunks of learning and development into a tiny activity. Let me give you an example. Say we want to transform an unconscious bias as part of our program and just pick a bias. Let's call it similarity bias which I I was working on recently, that's why I've just picked on that one, which in fairness, most of us hold quite naturally. Well, a lot of the biases we hold naturally, simply because we're tribal. Now, just for a second, don't think about these biases as being good or bad or negative or positive. Just accept that they are there because at some point in our evolution, they served us. So the question is, do they serve us now? And maybe some of them do. But the trick is with any unconscious bias is to endeavour to raise them into the conscious awareness. Because if they're outside of conscious awareness and we bring them into our conscious awareness, we can think critically about them. We can then create a forum or an experience or an activity where we can experiment, discuss, go through an experience and then reflect on that. From there, decide to adapt or not, as the case may be observe reflect adapt we can think be it critically analytically or creatively once it's in our conscious awareness so the trick is to get it there so back to the bias that I was talking about the similarity bias which basically means that we often prefer things that are like us over things that are different to us we can see why this has evolved as a sort of survival mechanism But in the 21st century, how could this bias take a wrecking ball to our own lives and negatively impact our organisations? Well, it is pretty obvious, but let's have an example. In the workplace, we may hire, we may promote, we may even favour people who are like us over those that are different to us quite unconsciously. And those people who are different to us may be best for the task, they may be most talented, whatever it may be for that task, that may be their strength or for the job in hand, but we become blinded to thinking critically about the qualities and competence and are more likely to ignore the weaknesses of the people that are like us. That is how biases can play out in our daily habitual behaviour and make us become dysfunctional leaders and colleagues. Imagine we think, I'll design a type of experiential or behaviour game activity to fix this challenge, and help people overcome this bias. So we've got great intentions. But the issue is that this bias, like many others, and how that plays out in behavior is really complex. It possesses hundreds of behavior nuances and complexities. So it's not one behavior that can be designed and be fixed in one activity. And when we're designing this style of learning in this way, we need to understand that really it's about nuances of behavior. So first, we have to research and understand the nuances that manifest through this bias and how maybe it's connected to other biases or beliefs that are affecting it. So as much as we can in that microcosm of that bias, we need to understand it. And there's plenty of research out there on everything. There is so much work being done that you can find out almost anything about anything. What we can do is design the activities around the science. But to do that, it has to be granular. We need to design a whole set of activities around these nuances and then put them together to achieve the job of raising our awareness to overcome this particular bias. The great news is that when that's successful and we overcome that one bias, it can have a massive knock-on effect in our own lives and the lives of people around us. In other words, our own life, our behaviour, but also set the culture imagine we're all changing introspectively and together so you can imagine the power of this at scale but it has to be done right and those activities need to be put together in the right way to achieve the outcome you want there's so much more involved in that and i'm going to be sharing that in future episodes And remember, we do have a program together with the treasure chest to get started. So each activity is only really dealing with a behavior nuance. And then we're stacking them together to create the interventions that we want, whatever size that may be. And this is why the biggest skill when I'm talking to practitioners about using the behavior game treasure chest is understanding the resource, getting creative and adding their own value and then being able to stack them together together to achieve an overall great experience, yes, but also a great overall learning outcome. We tend to create workshop pods with the activities already made up. So there's like 10 activities in a pod that you can use for team development, and we call it a workshop pod. The job of the facilitator or the champion is to bring them to life so they don't look that much on paper. So let's assume we have the perfectly designed experiential workshop ready to ignite our change and we're ready to go. The question is now, how is it best to roll it out? And let's assume we want to roll it out in the hybrid workplace. And I say this because that is a real challenge in many organisations at the moment. So I want to keep it relevant. And let's say it's 90 minutes. 90 minutes is enough to ignite change. Remember, only if you're then going to embed it and go through that cycle. If you just did a 90-minute workshop and that's your lot, there's your cultural change. Clearly, that is not going to work. But for Ignite, you don't need to do a lot for Ignite other than fantastic communications around the company and then getting everybody on the same page to Ignite them. Not necessarily in the same workshop or event, but within a period of time. So how is it best to roll it out? And then let's assume just for a second for a pretend case study, we've got a 1,000 people. Do we run it? On a Zoom? Do we run it on a Teams? Do we run it as a webinar? How are we going to run this thing? Because remember, it's meant to be experiential. So, do we put everybody in a webinar together, or do we run it in experiential workshops of like 25 to 35 participants and run it with breakouts and do it as a fully blown workshop? Question mark. And the truth is, there's many ways to run experiential or playful events in a virtual or face-to-face environment. And right now, I just want to focus on the virtual environment because I said about you know, the hybrid workplace and making sure it's inclusive. In a webinar environment, you can get people to interact and make it, in inverted commas, fun. But it isn't the best environment to deliver experiential sessions. Interactive training is not the same as the process of experiential facilitation. Virtual workshops on a platform like, say, Teams or Zooms or similar are great for experiential learning. You can do experiential learning activities in them. But many people are asking about how many participants is is ideal. And this is a tricky question because in reality, they could be designed to be any size. If you're breaking people out during activities or games, the directions of play in the breakout rooms have to be very very and I'll say another one very simplistic and we have to ensure that everyone can't possibly misunderstand the directions or you can completely ruin the experience and the outcome now that's a difficult thing to do because you may have multilingual people on there or for whatever reason the direction may not be clearly understood clearly if you have a lot of people in that workshop room and not a lot of facilitators and even if you do the logistics are tricky You can't really go and help with hundreds of participants if something's wrong. And also, you won't necessarily know it's wrong till they come back. So it's not really realistic to use breakouts unless you've got, say, 25 or 30 people in a room. Otherwise, by the way, it just ends up being a discussion in the breakouts. And that, again, can go wrong or right. The breakouts may be really, really good in experiential learning for reflection, but maybe not the experience if the workshop has hundreds of people in it. I hope that makes sense. I'm not saying it can't be done. And with resource, with enough resources and money, of course it can be done. It's it's very risky as well. So I hope that makes sense. So the perfect number really, if you're going to do this, more traditional experiential learning in a virtual environment is 20 to 25. So you don't want too little because you haven't got the energy. So if you've got like 10 it's a bit low on energy it sort of works out with that number and it allows the t- facilitator to ensure that they can check if they need to and go in and out the breakouts especially if they've got like an assistant having said all this everything is possible if it's designed right and you have the resources to manage a big event online with hundreds or even thousands of participants it could be designed around the experiential process so that's not to say it can't be, but these are the considerations. For example, if you had a very big event and you wanted to do it more experiential, you could do it as a sort of performance using people to demonstrate on the, in inverted commas, stage, even though it's virtual. Then work with the people introspectively to get the transformation so there are huge ways of doing this there's no such thing as things can't be done as you probably already know everything can be done if you're willing to put the resources and the money behind it the time behind it etc and of course the creativity behind it if you're running workshops between 20 to 30 participants and you have thousands of employees it's going to be a resource hungry process you may be thinking oh my god you know 1,000 people divided between 25 and 30 or 40 people. Mm. That means about 40 workshops at 90 minutes. Mm. Remember, two things here. One is enough to ignite change. So one workshop, if you're following up with embed interventions, grow interventions and sustain, which I will talk about in other podcasts. The objective of igniting change is just to ignite. So that's why one session is enough initially. You can do more later, by the way. You can come back to it once a quarter or anything like that, or go through a cycle and then come back to ignite again and continuously change. But maybe focus more next time on the next ignite on higher-order thinking skills like creative thinking, developing analytical thinking, questioning techniques, something that pushes the needle completely up. For now, what I've been talking about is really just setting sail on a new cultural journey. So what happens if we do not have time or the resources to roll out so many workshops, which may be the case, or maybe we simply don't have the the funds? The other option is to create champions or ambassadors. We call them behavior game champions or ambassadors, obviously, because that's the name of the, the resource, if you like. And then train them to facilitate short experiential interventions using these type of activities. So, you know, the thing is about champions and ambassadors, this is not the same as it was, say, five years ago. Really, we need champions and ambassadors now in a business, and we do need them to support the facilitation of cultural change, to make it possible. The skills and competence of champions and ambassadors has skyrocketed what they need to know and be able to do is at a much higher level but so what champions and ambassadors can do is facilitate behavior games activities in smaller groups maybe 10 to 15 people at a time maybe in teams in beginning of weekly team meetings for 10 minutes they can pop in the champion and do an activity and maybe do that Once a week, if you have a ratio of one ambassador to 50 employees, that could work well. The ambassador or champion can run regular interventions with one activity in a weekly team meeting as a coffee break learning session. It, It needs to be like 10 or 15 minutes and with 10 or 15 people. This is more realistic to say a coffee break learning session for 15 minutes with one activity and a warm up. That's absolutely doable. So that's a slightly more iterative approach. And of course, therefore, it's a little slower to ignite, but it's still very effective. And anyway, you need ambassadors and champions for later in the process. So that is an option. Or you could do a little bit of both. The goal here is to get everyone consciously and unconsciously on the same page in terms of what the culture looks like and what it feels like. How to support everybody to travel along that journey together on that same pathway to realise that vision. To all be aligned into the same organisational language and ensuring that organisational language is fit for purpose to set sail. The workshops or the ambassador approach can both get there if we follow the experiential and systematic approach. By the way, I will be doing an episode on creating Behaviour Games ambassadors and champions in about uh, five episodes time because they can play an instrumental role in transforming the behaviour and culture of our organisation, providing they have the passion, the skills, the toolkit and most of all the support to get the job done. So in the next episode, I am going to be taking you through my nudging, what it is, why we need it and how to design mind nudging sprints to embed behaviour and cultural change. In the meantime, if you have any questions, please do reach out to us at admin at virtualcoffeehouse.co or reach us via our website at virtualcoffeehouse.co and also sign up for heaps of free resources. So why not go for it? All that's left to say is have a wonderful week over and out.